Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. Last week, Joe Biden announced with justifiable pride that America had crossed the threshold of 200 million COVID vaccine shots administered, exceeding by 2x the target he set when he took office of 100 million shots in his administration's first 100 days. So, that milestone checked off. We thought it was time, high time, to return to the topic of the pandemic here on Hell and High Water to get a clear view of the situation currently, the good, the less good, the bad, and the horrific, as well as a sense of the medium and longer-term future that we all face. And to do that, we have with us two brilliant medical minds who spend their days and nights on the front lines of the COVID fight. First is an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University who served as the health commissioner for the city of Baltimore. That would be Dr. Lena Wen. The state of the crusade to vaccinate America is mixed. Because on the one hand, we have done a tremendous job in overcoming the first two obstacles, which is getting supply of the vaccine and administering the vaccine. On the other hand, we're now facing a wall of vaccine hesitancy. And I am not convinced that we are going to reach anywhere close to herd immunity in 2021. Our second guest today is a pulmonary and critical care physician an affiliate assistant professor of health metric sciences at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington in Seattle. That would be Dr. Vin Gupta. The future of COVID is uncertain. In the United States, we're trending towards normalcy or some vision of that by hopefully uh, the 4th of July. And yet there's crises all around us, whether it's in Latin America and Canada, our friends in the EU, certainly in India. And so our new normal is going to look a lot different, how we travel, where we travel. We have to keep that in mind in the coming months. Dr. Lena Wen and Dr. Vin Gupta are among the brightest rising stars in the world of public health. Lena was born in Shanghai and emigrated to the U.S. when she was just eight years old after her parents received political asylum here. She was educated as an undergraduate at Cal State University, L.A., in medical school at Washington University and at Merton College, Oxford, for good measure. After stints as an emergency physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and at Mass General, where she was on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, she became Baltimore's top health official from 2014 to 2018 and then was named the head of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, the first physician to serve as the organization's president in nearly 50 years. A CNN medical analyst and an op-ed columnist at The Washington Post, Lena is the author of the 2013 book, When Doctors Don't Listen, and the forthcoming book, Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health, a book I am dying to read, which comes out in July, and which all of you should pre-order on Amazon right now. Vin Gupta received his BA from Princeton, his MD from Columbia, a Master's in International Relations from Cambridge, and a Master's in Public Administration from one of my alma maters, the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. He's a wildly overeducated man. Vin has helped to lead major research efforts on an array of issues in global public health, with a particular focus on epidemic preparedness, playing a role at places such as the CDC's Emerging Infections Program, the World Bank's Pandemic Emergency Financing Facility, the China CDC, and the Pentagon Center for Global Health Engagement. Last year, Vin was named Principal Scientist at Amazon, running the company's internal and external COVID response work. He also helped stand up the Seattle Coronavirus Assessment Network the nation's first effort to scale home testing for COVID-19. And on top of all of that, Vin is a major in the U.S. Air Force Reserve Medical Corps, serving as a deployable critical care aerospace physician and a medical contributor for NBC News and MSNBC. All of which is to say that Vin and Lena are two extremely impressive cats, and that is just on paper. In practice, they're a pair of doctors you had likely never heard of, 
before March or April last year, but who since then have become absolutely indispensable voices regarding the crisis that has dominated our lives over the past 14 months and unfortunately may continue to dominate our lives for the foreseeable future. COVID is, of course, the topic that most directly spurred us to launch this podcast in the first place. In an era in this country, the Trump era, that is, that was pretty fucking apocalyptic even before the pandemic hit, the onset of this terrible plague pushed a whole lot of people into a state of disorientation and desperation and abject dread and caused even folks who coped reasonably well with the lockdowns and loneliness and longing for the days before the deluge to acknowledge a certain end times feeling in the air. And so today, at a moment when Americans are getting jabbed at what would only a few months ago have seemed to be an unprecedented pace, but when case levels in the U.S. are still alarmingly high, much of the world is absolutely on fire with COVID, and new and terrifying variants seem to be popping up by the day, I wanted to ask Lena and Vin just what the fuck is going on with COVID. Should we be overjoyed at the sight of the light at the end of the tunnel, or is that light a lot less bright than we might hope, or is there even a chance that what we're seeing is an oncoming train? Even more fundamentally, I wanted to know, like a lot of us want to know, when are things going to get back to normal? What might that new normal look like? Or, God forbid, might we never see anything that we recognize as normal again? I will say right now, the answers from Dr. Wen and Dr. Gupta will sometimes comfort you, sometimes alarm you, and often will surprise you. What they will not do is bore you. We have done some pretty interesting episodes of this podcast, if I do say so myself, but we have never done an episode more urgent, more important, or more impactful than this double-barreled update on the central wellspring of our current hell in high water. Back in December, I set a goal of administering 100 million shots, vaccine shots, in my first 100 days in office. At the time, some told us that couldn't be done. It was awfully ambitious, but we did it in 58 days because of the incredible staff I have. And so I set a second goal to deliver 200 million shots in my first 100 days in office. The goal unmatched in the world or in prior mass vaccination efforts in American history. <clears throat> when tomorrow's vaccine and vaccination numbers come out, will show that today we did it. This is an American achievement, a powerful demonstration of unity and resolve, what unity will do for us, and a reminder of what we can accomplish when we pull together as one people to a common goal. So that was Joe Biden, the president of the United States, you know, not exactly declaring mission accomplished or engaging in unwarranted triumphalism, but taking some credit for the success that his administration has had in rolling out this vaccine effort. And we're here on Hell and High Water with uh, Lena Wen and Vin Gupta, both doctors. I will not, I'm going to try not to call them Dr. Wen and Dr. Gupta throughout. I will probably call them Lena and Vin just because like, I hate that kind of formality. I hope you guys don't mind. They are two of my favorite COVID TV doctors, not just because they're, they don't play doctors on TV. They play doctors in their real lives, but then they come on television and help us all understand what the hell's been going on. It's good to see you guys. And I'm really glad you're here with us today. Great to be with you. Thank you. Likewise, John. So tell me, you guys, when you hear Joe Biden with the facts are the facts, what he said, true, right? A little bit of a tone of, of triumphalism there, a little bit. It's clear we've accomplished a lot. Have we accomplished enough at this stage? And what else do we have to accomplish just on the vaccination front in your view? 
I think that in general, the Biden administration has done a phenomenal job. And that's because if we look back and we think back to where we were in December, if you told us back in December that we would now be in late April, that we would have a situation of having administered more than 200 million vaccinations, that it would now be open season, that anyone who wants a vaccine is able to sign up and get a vaccine, that we've been able to reach more than 3 billion vaccinations a day for many days in a row. I think we would have said that's incredible from the starting point of where we were before to now. That's a lot of progress that was made. But that said, I do think looking back that there were some things that should have been done differently. Perhaps we'll talk about some of these things, but one of those includes, I think that the emphasis on equity is very good and is really important. But I also think that equity in some ways has been misconstrued. It's been misconstrued as somehow distributing the same number of doses based on population, regardless of speed and efficiency. And regardless of need, I mean, I hate the fact that there are lots of doses lingering in freezers somewhere because there isn't enough demand in these areas. But there are other parts of the country that are really dying to get these doses, literally dying to get these doses. And I also think that another major problem, I don't know if Ben agrees, but you know, my, I, I think that a major problem that's going to prevent us from actually reaching herd immunity is that the CDC specifically has been far too cautious in telling people what they can do once they're fully vaccinated. So it sounds like there are a lot of people who are looking at the CDC guidelines thinking, if nothing really changes for me once I get vaccinated, what's the point? And I really fear that we have missed that window of convincing a lot of vaccine-hesitant people to get the vaccine. John, I, you know, I always feel like I agree with what Lena says, and, and so it's <laughs> great to share a platform with her. I will say that it's how you define success for the Biden administration. Is it where they were starting and what they've achieved since? Uh, by any metric, they're doing great. Right. And as Lena just mentioned, but if we look at what was avoidable, what wasn't, and starting all the way back to February of 2020, then we're just playing cleanup here. Yeah, sure. And, and we're, we're mitigating an ongoing disaster. I agree with Lena here that I've had the chance to speak to young workforces, professional sports teams, younger people in the last several weeks, and and they need carrots. And it's not going to work. Their risk-benefit calculation on the vaccine versus the virus is fundamentally different than when I'm speaking to my folks or my uh, individuals in my parents' generation, yep. where get the vaccine or else you may end up on a ventilator. That just does not work to somebody who's 35 or younger, professional sports player, or somebody that's entering college. So either you mandate- Just a kid, yeah. Exactly, well, you know, and I'm sure we're gonna to get to this, either you mandate it when you can mandate it, and there's pros and cons to that approach, Yeah. or you need carrots. And carrots in the form of you get the vaccine and life becomes easier. But yet we're just not willing to have that conversation, certainly at the federal level. And I recognize that there's nuances here as to why we're not willing to have that conversation. But vaccine passports, to me, make a ton of sense when it comes to thinking about ways to normalize quickly and specifically deburdening small businesses, small restaurants that can't possibly continue to distance and implement all these strict mitigation protocols, but they could easily say, okay, you have a passport or you have a negative test, come right in, we have 100% capacity. We need to get small businesses, ballparks at 100% capacity as soon as possible so we can really restart the economy in a sensible, sustainable way. But the only way to do that without risking super spreader events is to make hard decisions. Right. I want to put a pin just a little bit in this discussion because there's been this obviously totally misconstrued 
sense over the last year, more in the Trump era than the new era, where it was like, science just wants us to not let us do shit. And the scientists are all, you know, just trying to hold this back. And you guys are kind of, I think, a great antidote to that because you're both kind of talking about how part of what's a problem right now is that we have to have a real conversation about what these vaccines let us do and not the dumb conversation where it was like, you know, opening up was kind of the anti-science view and closing down was the pro-science view or characterized that way, caricatured that way. There's a much more complicated discussion to have here, and it's great to open the door to that discussion. But I want to have, I ask you guys a question first. There was a story in the FT the other day, because it just goes to the question of like, what's going on at the highest level with this vaccination question? And I mean, the highest level in terms of like, are these vaccines working or not? Right. Because I think for a lot of people, you're seeing 200 million vaccinations in America, and yet the case numbers are not going down. And the story in the FT that I read, which was actually a global look at it, the lead to it said, you know, it's easy to feel that the coronavirus pandemic is getting out of control again. Rate of new cases hit a record last week. 5.2 million people around the world getting infected, according to Hopkins. Three months ago, people in India were celebrating at the prospect the country was approaching herd immunity. Now the number of cases is growing at an alarming rate. Europe is dealing with AstraZeneca. The United States is dealing with J&J. And then the story says, but the flurry of depressing headlines cannot disguise one thing. It is now clear that the vaccines are working. And I think it's just as a starting point here, well, you know, to take us to the kind of discussion we want to have, talk about that a little bit. Like, how do we reconcile in our minds the notion that so many people are getting jabbed and yet case levels are stubbornly high? I actually just wrote my last Washington Post column on the concept of we, as in the health community and the media, are not telling the right story here. And we are, I think, trying to get to this concept of zero risk when that is not the reality for where we are as a country. That actually goes back to the previous conversation about why are we not giving people better instructions on what they can do once they're fully vaccinated. But let me come back to that and say, there is growing evidence now about the efficacy of these vaccines in the real world, the effectiveness in the real world of reducing infection, of preventing death. And actually, I thought that the headline coming out last week in terms of data from the CDC were so compelling. They reported that there were 5,800 so-called breakthrough infections. So out of 77 million fully vaccinated people, 5,800 of them were diagnosed with COVID-19. There are some reports, media reports, that led with the headline of 5,800 breakthrough infections in vaccinated people. Let's put that into perspective. Every single day, there are 60 to 70,000 new infections in the general population. Right. So if you have a population of 77 million, there are 5,800 total infections. That's incomparable. Here's the problem, though. I think the scientific community is also guilty here. We know that if you're vaccinated, there is still risk. It doesn't mean that you're 100% protected. There are still some people who will get sick. There are still some people who will die, unfortunately. But that risk is much diminished. I think we should be telling people in no uncertain terms, unless you're someone who is in a specific category, immunosuppressed, very ill, et cetera, unless you're in that category, if you're otherwise generally pretty healthy, once you're vaccinated, go about your daily lives. I would actually go so far as to say, take off your mask unless you're in indoor crowded settings. Do the things that you wanted to do. Go to the gym, go to indoor restaurants, go travel and see your, your relatives. I really think to Ben's point, I think we need to be much better about giving people the incentive to be vaccinated. And I think the Biden administration is overcorrecting from the Trump administration. The Trump team didn't listen to scientists really at all. Right. That was clearly a big problem. Yeah. But the Biden team only listening to scientists is also not right. That is not good public health policy.
Lena, I love where you're taking this. John, if I may. Yes, please. This is symptomatic of the broader problem on how we were messaging about vaccine efficacy versus effectiveness from day one, which, I mean, you look at the New York Times, anytime there was data presented on X or Y vaccine, Pfizer, or in this case, I'm referencing AstraZeneca, they'll say it was 64 or 79% effective. But that's wrong. That is the wrong message to blare on our smartphones and on headline news. It's actually 100% effective. Effectiveness is what does it do in the real world? Does it keep you out of the hospital? Does it save your life? Does it keep you away from me and from Lena in clinical settings? And all these vaccines, AstraZeneca, J&J, keep you out of the hospital to the tune of nearly 100% per the data that Lena just mentioned. I mean, it's incredible three in every one million individuals actually ended up in the hospital. But that's not what the take home was for most people. We had to explain it in those terms. That's number one. But then number two, you know, I'm talking to business association groups, you know, how do we renormalize downtown here in Seattle or elsewhere? And yet there's the constant perseveration on daily cases. When hospitalization rates continue to downtrend in most zip codes across the country, that's the metric that matters here. There might be case transmission occurring. We may not even be detecting it because behaviors are going to change. People are not going to want to get tested. But it's hospitalizations that and the trailing average, say, over the last seven days, that really matters. I'll say here in Seattle, just to give you a concrete example, we're talking about opening day for the Mariners and bringing back a proportion of fans, say about 25% capacity. And at that same time, when there was 85% capacity in ICUs across the city of Seattle, there was a discussion being had across state and local government about moving us back to phase two. And I think that was the pressure that was being exerted in media on DeSantis and Abbott was forcing all 50 governors to say, we got to do something. When in reality, the data was saying, my gosh, we have a health system that is not stressed. Why are we doing that? Why are we having that conversation? We should be having a conversation about staying pat and moving ahead. So I think it's super interesting, and you guys are both kind of pushing towards a discussion of the larger discussion. I want to ask one last question before we get in a direct way to the question of vaccine hesitancy, which I think is like what we're circling around here and what you both are making kind of compelling. And I think for some people, what will seem to be counterintuitive arguments from the standpoint, again, of people are not used to, after the last year, hearing scientists talk the way you guys are talking. That is not like the way that that, and again, I'm, I'm very familiar with both of you guys. I know how you talk on television. I hear you guys all the time, but this is a very kind of squared up conversation. But I do want to ask just because of news right now, news of day about the J&J. And I think it actually goes into, you know, the FDA announced today that they're releasing the pause and J&J is going to come back in the marketplace. There's also been reporting just in this last 24 hours about the Biden administration, how pessimistic they now are about J&J and its ability to overcome what's happened at this point, both as a matter of manufacturing and as more importantly, as a matter of public perception that like, is it possible this thing is now just fucked in the public's eyes, regardless of what FDA says, regardless of what the stats say, regardless of what people like us say, you guys say, I don't know what you're going to say, but is it just the damage has now been done? But this does kind of fold into our discussion, right? Because for people who are vaccine hesitant, the single dose was important. That was a part of why that was such a promising vaccine. So I'd like you guys to talk about what you think about what's happened with J&J, what you think its role is in the future, and in this context, whether it's another problem we have to overcome, given the kinds of larger things you guys are both pointing to in terms of how do we get people who have different risk reward factors than you know, people with lots of comorbidities and old people who are like, give me the shot, give me the shot. How do we deal with that? Let's put J&J in that context and talk about it. I'm surprised by 
One, I'm surprised by how we're talking about J&J from a policy standpoint, at least what I'm hearing, which is that the pause will be lifted. There will be a, a, a rare warning label and other information given, and then that's that. And then we'll restart it. And yet that seems so tone deaf to at least what I'm hearing, I'm sure what Lena's hearing, that this has only caused those who are hesitant or skeptical to become even more rooted and cite yet another um, a reason for why they're going to wait and see, or they're not going to get it at all. And so to me, it seemed, and I'm hoping this is still the case, I recognize that we have news ahead in the next few hours, so this will be wait and see. But if AstraZeneca in the United Kingdom is being limited to those who are 30 and older, because of the same set of rare incidents of blood clots, why are we not taking a page from that? Because that's exactly what people are citing. Everybody that I speak to is very well versed in the headlines. They are seeing what's happening. And I think we risk underestimating the health literacy and people's constant eye towards the news cycle. They know what happened with AstraZeneca largely. They know that there were age limitations put in place. I think the Biden administration would be wise to do something similar with J&J so that there is compartmentalization of how people view it. Okay, we're still trying to figure out for a certain age group what the risk benefit truly is here, and we're learning more. But that would be a way to rebuild confidence, that let's phase in confidence, let's phase in our approach to reintroducing the J&J vaccine by putting some guardrails on it, just like they did in the UK with AstraZeneca under the same set of data points. Doing otherwise to me would be tone deaf to what we're hearing. So I have an, an additional perspective to offer here because I was a participant in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine clinical trial. I was actually in the two-dose version of the trial and found out about three weeks ago now that I had received the placebo and I was given the Johnson Johnson vaccine at that time. And of course, we are in the middle, as Ben Witt was mentioning, of the CDC's, their independent committee at the time that we're taping this, is actually meeting right now to decide. And the last thing that I had heard prior to joining you, John and Ben, in this conversation is that the cluster of these very rare blood clotting disorders is actually in women in their mid to late 30s, which is my age, as it turns out. So it's kind of an interesting time for us to be talking. And, you know, I think that there is the scientific reality, which is that even if you look at the cases of blood clots in this very specific age group in women, let's say under 50, which is a very specific age group. And even if you look at that group, the rate of clotting is still going to be very rare. But you could tell that to someone intellectually, and they might process that. But I can tell you, and I'm sure Ben can tell you from speaking to patients about risks, people don't see it as one in a million. They see it as, I could be the one in a million. And look, I think we would be having a very different conversation if the Johnson Johnson vaccine were the only vaccine that's available. Because we have Pfizer and Moderna as options too. I agree with Vin at the end, which is that for a certain age group, and maybe it's women under the age of 50, maybe it's people under the age of 50, I don't know, but whatever that age range is, it would make sense to say, perhaps for this age, consider taking an alternate vaccine because those vaccines are available. However, I would have a different viewpoint if it's the case of somebody who otherwise would not get a vaccine. So to your earlier point, John, about vaccine hesitancy, if it's somebody who, and you know, these are rumors that we need to dispel, but there are some people who believe that the Pfizer and Moderna, the messenger RNA vaccine somehow change your DNA or whatever untrue things. But if they have that viewpoint, and if it's either J&J &J or nothing, they should still get the J&J &J vaccine. Similarly, globally, J&J &J has a very substantial importance. My husband's family are all in South Africa. 
My mother-in-law is in her late 70s, but has not seen any vaccine. Actually, she would have been in line to get the Johnson Johnson vaccine, but then that was paused in South Africa. If her option is J and J or nothing, or if somebody were in South Africa were 30 and they at J and J or nothing, they should choose the J and J vaccine. And getting that nuanced messaging correct, I think, is going to be really challenging. You know, we're straight up looking at now. I think we can take on in a kind of foursquare way here the question of hesitancy and what it's about. And there's obviously no one answer to this. We know that there are groups that are identifiable where there is hesitancy. A big chunk of that is on the younger side, where as Finn started out, I say at the beginning, there's a different risk reward factor. There's people who are either pregnant women who are women who want to be pregnant. There are Republicans, it turns out, just as a group are, and we know what that's a kind of a legacy of. It's the legacy of the culture war that happened over the course of the last year around all this stuff, but it's also more deeply seated than that. And there's an anti-vax community that's been around for a long time, long before this. I want to play Ron Johnson, the Republican Senator from Wisconsin. I want to play a little bit of sound here just to hear this and and then we can talk a little bit about there's not one answer, I think, to how do we deal with vaccine hesitancy? And I think you guys aren't going to say there is. But th I think there's a cluster of things that are going to be the answers here, or what you guys are going to want to lay on the table. And this, I think, might kind of set that up a little bit because it's one extreme kind of point of view. It's extreme, but you hear it all the time in America. Play Ron Johnson, please. The science tells us that vaccines are 95 percent effective. So if you have a vaccine. Quite honestly, what do you care if your neighbor has one or not? I mean, what, what is it to you? you you've got a vaccine, and it's, you know, science is tell, telling you it's very, very effective. So wh why is this big push to make sure everybody gets a vaccine? And, and it, to the point where you better impose it, you're going to shame people. You're going you're gonna to force them to carry a card to prove that they've been vaccinated so they can participate in society. Um, I, I'm, I'm getting highly suspicious of what's happening here. So that's Ron Johnson expressing a thing, which is kind of like the government control concern, right? Which gets to some of the vaccine hesitancy thing around the passports. We don't want passports. We don't want that kind of control in our lives. Even if I'm willing to get a vaccine, I don't want the government telling me to get a vaccine. And again, this kind of feeds back in Vin, to your earlier point about like the notion of a vaccine mandate, you know, people on half the political class would go batshit. So let's just dive in on this here. Like what, what now has to happen as we confront all of these different permutations and manifestations of, of vaccine resistance or hesitance to get where we need to go. And we'll talk later on the podcast about what normal would look like, but let's just say to get to where we need to go to where we can get out of a world where we still have this way too high level of cases. And even though the death rates are going down, we obviously can't tolerate in a long-term way, the number of people who continue to get sick. You know, I mean, I think it's tempting for me when I first hear Senator Johnson's comment. My first reaction is he just doesn't understand vaccines, right? I mean, vaccines, yes, they protect you. But the idea is that it also protects others around you, especially those who cannot be vaccinated. At the moment, vaccines are not approved for children, as an example. Ben has a young child. I've got two little kids who cannot be vaccinated. And we depend on others around us to get vaccinated for those who can't. Similarly, there are people who are immunocompromised. Let's say if you are a transplant patient on immunosuppression, if you are a cancer patient on chemotherapy, you may not mount the antibody response. And so the vaccination protects you a little bit, but not very much. And you rely on others around you to keep the level of virus down so that you can resume your life too. You know, my initial reaction is I want to argue point by point with Senator Johnson, but I actually think that that's the wrong approach. I think that there are, to your question, John, there are a lot of reasons why people are vaccine hesitant. 
we can't lump them into the same category. And I think we need to address each of their concerns compassionately and one-on-one. I mean, certainly somebody who's a politician trying to grandstand, that's a different question. But individuals, I'm thinking in the clinic setting, I'm sure Ben has many experiences with this too, but just talking to patients, hearing why. I mean, I talk to patients every year about the flu vaccine. A lot of them don't want to get the vaccine. I'll tell you what makes it easier. One, if the vaccine is right there, they don't want to make a separate appointment. If we can say, hey, let's talk about the vaccine. And by the way, we can get it to you right now. That makes a big difference than saying, hey, leave and then make an appointment and then go to the, you know, it just, it's a lot. So that's one thing. Convenience is a big issue. I think people have all kinds of things. There are rumors floating around that are untrue about the vaccine somehow influencing fertility or changing your DNA or giving you coronavirus. I'm sure you've heard them so many times and they're just, they're not true, but it's important to address these rumors one-on-one and not, you know, most people are not anti-vaxxers who are anti-science and don't give their kids vaccines. Most people who are vaccine hesitant aren't politicians trying to push their own partisan agenda. Right. So I think we need to meet people where they are with compassion. Vin, I just love if, as you discuss this, because I know you have strong, you have a lot of thoughts about it. Make sure as you address this, you come back to a couple of things you put on the table before, which were carrots or mandates. That, you know, so that something is going to have to happen along those lines, either some really big, juicy, sweet carrots or we're going to have to go in another direction. But that's the real part of the real conversation that we have to have here. Absolutely, John. And, and just building on what Lena said, you know, first of all, I think the, the issue of hesitancy has been overplayed. It exists, but the majority of people who are not saying, give me the shot the first time I'm eligible most of them are reachable. I really believe that. To Lena's point, you have to engage, you have to answer the same question multiple times, but it has to be in a small group setting. Addressing the questions she just mentioned, because those are the most common ones. To your point though, John, about carrots, because it's gonna be a multimodal approach. It's gonna be messaging, proactively addressing questions, but then for some individuals, it's gonna be pure carrots and sticks. And we need to embrace that. My thinking here on passports is, of course, this is political, and it's not going to be driven by the public sector. It's going to be private enterprises saying, you know what, if you want to get on that flight, if you want to come book my hotel room, and I mean, and we need large industries to take the lead here or restaurant uh, groups, we're already seeing this. We're seeing colleges and universities embrace this paradigm because you know what, they've been already been doing it for a whole host of other vaccines. So this is not any different. But then you, you have a major hotel chain say you need to show proof of vaccination or ballparks, Major League Baseball, you name it, that is going to create a trend that's going to be positive here. And to push back on on Senator Johnson, just to, you know, when he listens to this, what I'll say is he doesn't recognize that this is a national emergency. This is a global emergency. So different rules also need to apply here. And that's where definitiveness is vital. I'm encouraging every organization that I interact with to adopt this because you know what? It's easier said than done, John, to input mitigation measures in place. It's really hard to do that, especially distancing, ensuring people are masked, having some sort of testing requirement. Lee and I were talking about the battle we both waged in parallel to make sure that teachers were going to get vaccinated as a key cog for return to school, because that was the most common sense way to do it as quickly as possible, get our kids back in the classroom. This is in some ways very similar accepting that vaccine passports or some whatever word you want to use is a vital component of getting us to 75-80% coverage. I think you're going to see industries taking a lead role here because they're going to recognize that, gosh, this is way easier than what we've been doing for the last 14 months. Yes. And I, I as is often the case, I mean, I don't know that industry leading the way 
is going to allay people like Senator Johnson who have partisan agendas, as Lena said, and and they, you know, earlier in that same bite in a different place, he's, you know, he said, well, I'm sure these, you know, woke capitalists are going to get the corporations to do what they want. You know, we don't want to see that happen. But I agree. If there's no question that the private sector is going to lead on this, if it's going to happen on the side of the vaccine passports, I think that's right. I actually wrote a column about this recently also for The Post about this issue of the so-called vaccine passports. And in this regard, I have a slight disagreement with Vin, although I think ultimately we agree. It's more the, obviously we agree on the goal here. I think part of it is I am recognizing the huge pushback that I get every time we even insinuate that there is some kind of government involved in any of this that I think something about the word vaccine passport is really setting people off in a direction that's not even accurate, as in we're not really suggesting that people carry this thing around with them. And now, I don't know, somehow it's like a driver's license or whatever, right, that you just cannot get your normal benefits or whatever, vote or whatever because of this. I and mean, we're not suggesting that. To me, it's more like a health screening that you already have to get if you're entering buildings and you have to have a symptom questionnaire or sometimes you have to get testing. It's kind of an extension of that. What I found to be the most troubling in all of this, in all of this rhetoric around vaccination actually, is governors of certain states like Texas, Florida, and South Dakota, among others, saying that they are not going to allow private businesses to ask for proof of vaccination. And to me, this is the height of hypocrisy because we're talking about people who normally are all pro-small business and pro-business and pro-innovation. These are businesses that are trying to do their best to ensure health and safety. They're actually listening to customer demands. I really like what Vin said earlier about how restaurants can be at 100% capacity if they check for vaccination status, or gyms can have indoor fitness classes again, or you can have planes that are fully packed or cruise ships or whatever. I mean, I just, I cannot wrap my mind around why governors would say, Private businesses, universities, whatever, cannot do this. I understand, actually, not having a government mandate. My family and I left from China on um, political asylum. I'm not a fan of any time I hear government overreach, I, I have a very visceral reaction to it. So I, I get it. Yeah. But I also really, I, I just cannot understand this opposition to letting businesses do their work. This is a good, actually a pretty good transition. I want to pick up on this on the other side of our break. We got to take a quick break right now. We're going to be back after these brief messages with Dr. Lena Wen and Dr. Ben Gupta here on Hell and I Water. Hey, sports fans, if you are someone who enjoys Hell and High Water and you are interested in understanding the storylines that are shaping modern life, and I mean, who isn't? Big storylines like the financialization of everything, the world in disarray and cutting-edge advances in the world of science and technology, then you are going to love and find absolutely indispensable The Recount's newest podcast, The News Items Podcast with John Ellis. Every Monday through Thursday at 5.30 p.m., John and his brilliant co-host, Rebecca Darst, break down news items from three categories, geopolitics, finance, and science and tech. John Ellis writes one of the very best newsletters in journalism. I'm talking about, like, I get a lot of newsletters, and most of them wash right over me. This one sticks. It's also called News Items, and he's teamed up with Rebecca, who is a veteran financial journalist and someone who just takes a little bit of John's edge off. If you want to feel a little bit smarter or maybe even a whole lot smarter every day and come away with a better understanding of the forces that are changing and shaping and transforming our world, then you owe it to yourself 
to listen to John and Rebecca and the News Items podcast. Plus, on most days, those two brilliant people have a bunch of other brilliant people who come on. Heavy hitters like Maggie Haberman from The New York Times, Jim Cramer from Business TV, Jill Abramson, Steen Jakobsen, all kinds of great folks. So subscribe to the News Items podcast with John Ellis now. And we are back on Helen Highwater with Lena Wen and Vin Gupta, both doctors, both people you had never heard of before COVID hit. And then they become kind of omniscient, omnipresent forces in our lives on the television, trying to help us all make sense of what's happened over the course of the last year. And we're past the one year anniversary. And just about one year ago, a guy who used to have a pretty big megaphone said this. So supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. We'll the right, folks who right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. You know, it was hard to get Donald Trump to acknowledge that he'd made an ass of himself and that was doing himself political damage. But after that, they actually made him stop doing the briefings in the White House for a while because they realized that this was, even for Trump, was a step too far. And Lena Wen and, and Finn Gupta, I, the reason I play it, I, I occasionally like to be reminded, because it is just kind of unfathomable that that was the leadership we had in our country when this great pandemic hit us. And I, as bad as it's been, in some ways, I'm shocked that he didn't end up, they didn't kill us all. You know, I mean, truly, you know, it's been devastating, this pandemic. But in some ways, it's a testament to how resilient the country is that that kind of leadership wasn't actually more damaging but it has had repercussions, as Lena was talking about before the break. It feels to me like a lot of the things that we're now dealing with are still hangovers in some ways from from the last year. Vin, you said a thing earlier about how we're still doing cleanup in a way. I think and that's true not just in terms of the size and scale of the pandemic, but also in terms of a lot of the attitudes that people have, a lot of the political divisions, a lot of the challenges we have going forward on the regulatory front, the cultural front, on every front are still kind of residual kind of grime and muck that are on the body politic and on our whole society left over from how fucked up everything about the way we dealt with this was for the first six months last year when Donald Trump was president. I mean, John, you're right. It's, it's hard to hear that actually and, and make sense of it now just looking back. I mean, what I'll say is, I think it's taken a toll on the medical profession. And I don't know if it's because, and, and I won't speak for Lena here, but I'll say that I've gone into, I, I hope, polite disagreements with some of my colleagues here on things that, to me, just make a ton of sense. But I think it's, we're all worn down by the debates we've been having about therapeutics and other interventions to save people's lives. But, you know, I'll reference the debate on monoclonal antibodies, something that has no harm signal, John. It's not going to harm you if you get it, but it might save your life if you get it early enough, you're high risk. And yet this is such a point of debate and tension in the medical profession. I don't know if that would have been the case if we didn't have hydroxychloroquine and if we didn't litigate wars on plasma, on you name it, zinc. If we didn't have to go through that nonsense, I think we would be much more patient when it comes to things that actually might be beneficial, but we're not, we're, we just don't have that patience anymore. So yes, the grime applies to all parts 
of society, but definitely has impacted healthcare and, and, and the people that staff it. Yeah, there's something, John, in what you said that really struck me, which is, and I hate to quite say it like this, because obviously, I mean, it's been, it's a horrible tragedy that 570,000 people died here in America and so many others around the world. But in a lot of ways, it could have been so much worse. I mean, this COVID-19 is a dangerous disease that's deadly with a fatality rate of 1%. What if we were dealing with a disease that had a fatality rate of 30%? I mean, we would have had the same administration. Right. I don't know that we would have said, and somehow they would have done so much better if it were um, a deadlier disease, right? I mean, you're shaking your head. Obviously, I say that in chest. And, you know, I look back and I think in so many ways, we got lucky. Who would have thought? I definitely didn't. Maybe Vin did. I don't know. But I definitely did not think that we would have three vaccines by now. I mean, how, how this happened, you know, science is actually delivering us out of this pandemic. But actually, we have been failed. We have failed and we have been failed. I don't mean medical professionals, but I mean, we as a country, we as people have been failed by our system. That's missed so many things along the way that didn't have a national coherent response that put out this disinformation every day as we're hearing. And I completely agree with Vin that these effects are continuing. And I think that the ongoing polarization and politicization of vaccines, it's the same thing that happened with masks. And I can't quite believe that this is now occurring when vaccines are actually, at this point, our only way out of the pandemic, I believe. Well, then that raises a question, which is, I think, a good looking back question over the course of the last year. You know, here's what we learned is we learned that if you have an incompetent, moronic, pathologically cruel, disinterested, self-interested, kleptocratic president of the United States and administration around him, when a pandemic hits, you're in trouble. So that's one thing we've learned. But what if we learned, I jest slightly, but not much, what you guys are like frontline people, right? You're out there. And, and what I what I want to know from both of you, because you're both super honest about this and you kind of started to lead down this path with your previous answer. What have we learned good and bad about American public and private health over the course of this year? It seems to have been, I mean, some ways, Lena just made the point. I mean, science is saving us, you know, and God knows, you know, that it's not just because of, you know. Project Warp Speed, this has like been a revolution long building in pharmaceuticals that led to the mRNA platform. But some way, some ways this is a triumph of modern medicine and science. And then there are other ways in which it feels like even if you set aside Trump's incompetence and the administration's incompetence, there are certain ways in which there have been things revealed about where the seams are and where the gaps are and where the holes are in our public health infrastructure that we have to look at and say, well, wait, we got to fix this shit because there's going to be another pandemic and it could be a much worse pandemic that's coming down the path. What have we learned about what needs to get fixed? What's good and what's bad? What's working, what's not working in our health and scientific infrastructure that deals with these things when they do hit? Well, John, I would say that in the 14 months here, you've seen a movement and just being enormously involved in the telemedicine space, I can say that people now want to consume healthcare at home. And we have a healthcare system that's really adopting to changing behaviors. And so you're seeing a healthcare system that has transformed leaps and bounds to ensure that we can get tests in people's homes. We can get healthcare providers zooming in virtually, and that is going to be the way of the future. So while there are several holes that exist in February, 2020, and they still exist, I'm not naive to think that they still don't exist. Our system has been stressed, but it's responding and it's modernizing by ensuring that we are meeting people where they want to consume healthcare. So that's number one. I I think that's a positive uh, silver lining. Obviously, 
We're not helped by the fact that our baseline healthcare is terrible in the sense that the state of American health, where obesity and ischemic heart disease continues to be the biggest killers in a non-COVID world day after day, year after year. And that's one of the biggest risk factors for ending up in the ICU if you get exposed to COVID. So we're learning that. We're learning that our underlying health is one of the biggest drivers for having 570,000 dead and counting in addition to incompetent leadership, as you mentioned. And then lastly, I'll say, and this sort of piggybacks off the last question, the grime here, and this is emblematic of how our politics is working against progress in healthcare. Folks like Lena and myself, we're viewed as part of the problem now by a segment of society that personal freedom and the concept of it has been distorted. And there's some people out there who think that folks like Lena and I are trying to control their life versus our intention, Lena, I hope you don't mind me saying our here, is just to ensure that you live a long, healthy life, that that's our concept of personal freedom. And yet it's been distorted. And that's one of the biggest drivers of ill health and certainly of the infodemic. Yeah. And also to add to what you just said, Vin, it's not just their ability to live a healthy and happy and long life. It's everybody else's. And I think that's part of where this personal choice ends up getting distorted. COVID-19 is an infectious disease. I mean, this is obvious, but it's not the same as you could say for somebody's decision to smoke or eat unhealthy foods. In that case, sure, there is maybe a societal implication in that maybe you end up consuming more healthcare resources down the line if you end up becoming ill, but it's still about yourself. I mean, this to me is much more similar to drunk driving. We have laws against drunk driving because it protects other people. Anyway, this seems rather obvious, but just feel like, you know, it's in whenever I hear this concept of, well, wearing a mask or John, you were asking earlier, getting a vaccine, that's my business, not anybody else's. Well, actually it is. And I think that's part of what makes this so frustrating. I'll just add that in terms of what I hope that people have learned about our healthcare system and where we are, John, is... I think that COVID has unveiled existing issues and two very specific issues that I hope will be lessons in the sense of don't let a good crisis go to waste, right? I hope these are the things that we'll take away. One is that health disparities have long existed pre-COVID. COVID has unveiled them, has unmasked them, and has shown us that unless we are intentional about addressing disparities, they're only going to get worse. And it's not just a matter of individual choice. I mean, even we talk about this with testing or vaccine access. It's not just does somebody want to do this, it's do they have access to it. The second thing that I hope there'll be more attention to is the issue of public health. I mean, this is my life, right? That we, as the former health commissioner in Baltimore, I talked about this all the time, that people think about healthcare, but never about public health, about the water you drink, the air you breathe, all these other conditions of your life, the social determinants of health, poverty as a health issue. And I think people are now really understanding, you know, housing is a health issue. Food is a health issue. These are all affected by COVID-19 and affects it back. And I hope that there's going to be a lot more attention going forward, which I really worry about because I am sure there's going to be a lot of attention on how to prevent the next pandemic. That's really important. But I also want the attention to the issues that Vin talked about. I want attention to obesity, to diabetes, to chronic disease, one step beyond that to food systems and the access to care that people already have or don't have. And I think that's our next challenge. And that's actually also a good place for us to take one more quick pause to do one more quick commercial break. Um, Lena, you just threw towards the future, and that's really what I want to talk about next, is look a little bit down the road here, both the short-term, medium-term, and long-term. But we'll do that when we come back from this commercial break after we sell you some soap flakes here on Hell and High Water. We'll be back with Dr. Vin Gupta and Dr. Lena Wen. 
And we're back on Hell and High Water with Vingupta and Lena Wen. Let us listen for a moment to a man who was a pretty heroic figure before the pandemic and now has taken on kind of cult status in American society, at least in parts of it. That's Dr. Anthony Fauci. So when you have infectious diseases, the three ways you go at them, you can control them, you could eliminate them, or you can eradicate them. It is unlikely that we will eradicate this, at least not in the near future, because of its widespread global uh, um, uh, spread that we have. That's not going to happen. So then what do you think about that? I mean, I think for a lot of people, they assume at some point COVID will be gone. And Anthony Fauci is saying eradication, pretty unlikely. He's right, John. And, and this goes back to one of our first comments here, which was July 4th, we might feel 90% normal and the rest of the world. I have colleagues in Toronto right now, outside Paris and New Delhi and outside Rio, and the rest of the world's on fire. And you know what? That may not impact your day-to-day here sitting in the States, but it should impact where you think about vacationing. You shouldn't cross an ocean, in my view, number one. And then number two, I'm scared of a nightmare scenario of where a variant arises that puts us back to day zero. You know, we notice, uh, just speaking with family out uh, near Mumbai, uh, the variant that was first detected there, this quote-unquote double mutant variant, went from Mumbai to the Bay Area in less than a week in terms of at least when it was detected. And luckily, we think that hopefully the vaccines are effective against it. But John, to your point, we're not going to eradicate COVID. We're going to hopefully learn to live with it. But between now and learning to live with it, hopefully it gets relegated to being something that we don't have to worry about for the vast majority of people. Between now and then, however, and and that's going to take some time, there is the omnipresent threat that we could always be back to day zero because of a variant that arises. And that I think people really need to be mindful of that when they think about where they're traveling and, and just what might be happening across the rest of the world. And then lastly, the importance of vaccinating the entire world. And that's bringing this home. Mm. That's why J&J and AstraZeneca and rebuilding confidence in a phased approach is vital because we need those vaccines for the rest of the world. And the rest of the world needs to see that we're still using at least the J&J vaccine in the United States. And that's not relegated to second tier status. So Lena, we first started thinking about doing this podcast, I did, not that long after the pandemic started. And part of the reason why it's called Hell and High Water was I, I was kind of trying to wrap my head around what just this kind of end times feeling in the country and, and probably abroad. I haven't been abroad since the pandemic started, so I don't know what people feel there. I read things, but I don't really know. But I knew that a lot of people felt like this was an apocalyptic moment on a bunch of fronts. The pandemic, a big one, but racial reckoning, other things going on, Trump in the White House, people were freaked out, like felt more apocalyptic than they'd felt in a long time. The thing that Vin just said is the most apocalyptic thing I think a lot of people can imagine. I mean, people are scared of the variants, but the notion that a variant could arise that would take us back to zero. uh, And then, you know, if you marry that scenario up with a scenario you raised earlier, which was like, well, what happens if it's a pandemic where the fatality rate is much greater than the relatively low rate of COVID? You know, that's about as like as scary a a scenario as one can imagine. And Vin just basically kind of said, well, that's not like a, a far off fantasy. That's not like some dystopian fantasy that could really happen. I mean, how worried are you about that? I'm in ER doc, and so my mind always goes to the worst case scenario. <laughs> Maybe Vin is the same working in the ICU. It's like, this is the likely thing. However, let me think about all the five things that could possibly go wrong, and they're all really, really dark places. But that's so, this is how I think too. <laughs> and if Vin hadn't given that worst case scenario, I would have because I really worry about that. But here's another scenario that I think is actually more likely than the one that been named, which I think is 
you know, could definitely happen and I really worry about. I think this could also happen, which is a bit of an in-between. Um, I worry that things are going to get good enough this summer. Good enough, not great. We're still going to see cases. We're still going to see people die, but we'll get a lot of things back, especially because the weather's getting nicer. We'll spend a lot more time outdoors. The virus spreads much less outdoors. I think things will just feel better. And a lot of people who are on the fence now and aren't sure whether they want to get the vaccine are going to say, COVID is not that big of a deal. I'm not going to get it. I hear about these blood clots. I don't want to get those. I don't think that this is that big of a deal. I'm just, you know, it's fine. And what I worry about is we don't reach, again, anywhere close to herd immunity. Then come the fall, even forget the rest of the world. Yes, there are variants that could be brewing out there, too. I worry that we'll see resurgences in our own country that could derail a lot of our efforts. I don't know if we'll go back to square one and see 570,000 more deaths this fall. I mean, I don't know, right? I, I don't think this is going to happen because I think that the vaccines we have do provide very good protection. Even if variants were to develop, they're still going to provide, I think, I hope, pretty good protection against these other variants too. But I do worry that we're going to continue to see resurgences that in this case were really preventable if only we had hammered it in much sooner. And here, I do just want to challenge the Biden administration for a moment. I think they've been putting a lot of focus on let's get the society immunized, as in let's get to a high rate of vaccination overall. That's when we can lift the restrictions. We're in this together. I mean, I agree with them. I live in this world. I think like them. Sure. There are a lot of people who don't think like that. And I really think that we need to also reach the, I hate to put it quite this way, but the Senator Cruz's, the Senator Johnson's, you know, the people who say, I got the vaccine. I want to take off my mask. I want to do whatever I want to do. I actually think that we could get a lot further at this point if we say, don't wait until everybody's vaccinated in order to get back to normal. Just you get vaccinated and then you get back to normal. If that's what it takes to get you vaccinated, I can live with that. Vinu, can you live with that? I can. Lena's right. And the scenario that she paints is actually, I, I agree, is the most likely scenario that we do not reach herd immunity and that there is a, a fall resurgence. Right. And, and there is that combination of threats. So no, but I absolutely could live with that. I mean, I saw Scott Gottlieb on TV the other day saying the former FDA head who said exactly this. It was like, you know, we're going to have a decent summer, not a great summer, but a decent summer. And a lot of people are going to, he laid out the thing you just laid out, Lena, but he's very worried about November, December. And that that's the future of COVID. If you don't go down Vin's path, which again is the one that, that I think scares a lot of people and scares me, you know, is that especially given the global nature of the pandemic and the rapidity with which the globe is, it's global and the globe is very small, it turns out now, you know, and things can move very quickly from places where public health is terrible and where all kinds of crazy shit is happening. You know, that kind of back to zero, it sounds terrible, but I think for a lot of people, it would sound pretty terrible just to think that like, well, you know. We're going to have a pretty good summer. Summer's going to be normal, basically normal. There's going to be a lot of great things happening. And then you're going to be told that Christmas, you can't go back and have Christmas with your families again. And that's, you know, last Christmas, there was the whole discussion. I'm just in the commonplace discussion was don't see your families for Thanksgiving this Christmas, you know, bank it for now, do this for yourselves, do this for the country. But next Christmas, you'll all be back together again. And then we could have back again, this pandemic raging again in the winter. And it becomes a seasonal thing and how severe that is. I guess that's the question, right? Again, if you don't go to, to the nightmare scenario, what does it look like for COVID to be a serious seasonal phenomenon like the flu 
but more serious in the sense that it kills more people, but that that could go on for, I don't know how long. I mean, I'm asking you guys kind of, is that a thing you could imagine playing out where a decade from now we're still having COVID outbreaks in the winter? Is that possible? Maybe. I mean, I'm, it's definitely possible. I certainly think it's possible this winter. I think that especially in this country where we have pockets of resistance, I mean, we are going to have places that reach herd immunity in those locales. I wouldn't be surprised if New York City or the state of New Hampshire and other places that have really good uptake will reach herd immunity in those areas. But there are lots of other parts of the country that will not reach herd immunity that I'm quite sure will, you know, maybe even stack at 20% of people immunized or some very low number. So we could see localized outbreaks for quite some time. I don't know about for years down the line. Vin, I'm, I'm curious what, what you think about this. Yeah, Lena, you know, my, my sense here is that we think, John, that there's some degree of protection across variants. So if you've been exposed and then have survived COVID, that you, we don't know how long you're protected for, but that you know your body has multiple mechanisms of immunity and that that will protect you across variants. So I do think that if we let this just spread like wildfire for a few years, few cycles, it's gonna die out to something that's more manageable. But is there the potential for peaks for the next few years, especially come the winter time when we know cold and flu season, respiratory viruses like cold, dry air? Yes, I do think for the next few years, especially if you don't reach herd coverage, for vaccines, that is a possibility. And I agree 100% with Lena that come July, you know, I've always wondered, come July 4th, what's the messaging going to be like from the Biden administration? Right. Is it a flip of the switch? Because we know that this is going to be a 50-state approach, 50 different approaches here. Some states have already approached reopening, like Texas, full-fledged, right. but it's going to be very regional. It's not going to be one size fits all for the country. So let me, let me stick with you, Vin, and ask you guys, and you guys can take your time and answer this because I'm about to give you powers. I mean, you guys are powerful. You know, doctors have a lot of power over individual lives and, and other things, but this is a new kind of power for you. Okay. So then we'll I'll ask you first, you know, we've got the problem of federalism that you just raised. It's different states, different approaches, people grappling with, you know, mask mandates, outdoors, indoors, the cultural issues related to that, the political issues, the regulatory issues, all that stuff. So if you were God, with total fiat here, at least we'll just restrict it to the United States, not globally, just here in America. And you could do whatever you wanted at the snap of a finger to do what needs to be done now to try to get back to something that approaches what we used to think normal was like, right? I don't know if we'll ever be back to that, but whatever it is, what would you do You know, in terms of public safety, regulation, what would you do that you think is tenable? I don't mean just, you know, I would snap my fingers and everybody would be vaccinated. I mean- yeah. What would be the policies that you would say, these are the policies we should pursue that I think people could tolerate that would be realistic. But if you could, you were kind of in charge in that way, like what's the right path that would be the one to follow to try to get back again as close to normal as possible on some reasonable timeline? Well, John, this may not surprise you based on the nature of my responses in this last hour we spent together, but I, I would mandate the vaccine and, and then everything goes away to at least a certain degree here. But in a public health emergency, you actually do have the power. Frankly, constitutionally, in a public health emergency, the government has the power to do this. But I would remove the burden on employers to make that decision and other private organizations because they're having a really tough time debating it. Every single one I know of is pulling out the hairs because they want to do it, but they recognize they'll get killed in the court of public opinion if they lead with it. I would do that because you know what, if we do that, then two weeks later, after we go through mass vac sites across the country, 
then we can safely do all the things that everybody wants to do with, as Lena has pointed out several times, without the burden of masks. There's no need for carrots. We can start to really move some of these policies away. And then what I'd love to also do is make the process of doing pragmatic clinical trials easier. So that would be number two. Like I'd like to have two sites, two warehouses. One site has reached 80% vaccine coverage. Another site has also reached 80% vaccine coverage. Say two warehouses full of employees. One, you remove masks and distancing mandates. The others, you put them in place and just let's look at transmission of the virus. Let's just answer these basic questions about what is and is not safe through quick trials without the nuisance and burden of IRBs and all these other things that just slow down the development and the acquisition of learning. That's vital to help guide the way that Lena and I message on. And then lastly, I feel like we need more Lena wins out there that are clinically trained, who know how to communicate simply to the public there has been a crisis of, mis of communication in a public health emergency because we don't have enough good communicators who have the credibility in this space to talk. We have a lot of credible national security communicators or political commentators, but we don't have a lot of health communicators that can navigate this space effectively because we don't get taught in medical school how to do this unless you take alternative career paths. So that would be a focus as well. Lena Wen, I would love to hear your, your response on this. So uh, let her rip. Well, how could I pass up the opportunity to be God? Give policies by fiat. I to, love to, to be God. Who, who would pass up the chance to be God? <laughs> exactly. Well, I will first say that I think we should have a lot more Vin Kuptas in this world and um, have just really appreciated Vin the way that you, I think, are among few who understand that science alone is not the answer. And here, again, you know, we've said a lot of very complimentary things about the Biden team, but I really want to press them on this. Look, I love these people. Many of them are my close friends and colleagues, and they're fantastic people. It's not any individual's fault. It's that sometimes when you're, when you're in things full time, this is all you do, you see infection control as the only goal. And that may be the only goal from one person's standpoint. If you're an epidemiologist, if you're maybe the CDC, you know, you have that one goal. But we really need to be making decisions, especially at this point in the pandemic, based on what's better for all of us from a holistic point of view. What will help to restart the economy? What will help to get our kids back in school? We cannot just be thinking about infection control and staying indoors and being away from people and it's just not gonna work. And so to that point, what I would want is for the CDC and for the Biden administration. Right now, as I understand, there is this firewall between scientists and the White House. That firewall needs to go away because you cannot have decisions only made by scientists. Again, you don't want to go back to the Trump administration where politics is driving everything, but you have to take into account these other factors too. And so get rid of the firewall and instead start making very practical recommendations, the most practical of which is get the vaccine. Two weeks after you get the vaccine, go back to many aspects of pre-pandemic normal. To the point that Vin raised, I would also say, because there are a lot of questions now about when do we lift restrictions. I think the time is right now. As in, you say restrictions are still in place if you cannot guarantee vaccination status. But if you can, if you are checking for proof of vaccination, all restrictions are lifted. Full theater, full indoor dining, etc. If you check vaccination status, if not, 30% capacity. I actually think something like that is actually eminently doable. This is not a pipe dream. We're seeing Israel do it. We can do it here in this country too. And I actually think that this is what we need to do to overcome that final bit of vaccine hesitancy. 
I do not have great hope, though, that the Biden administration is actually going to do this. But I hope they listen to this podcast, listen to Finn, listen to you, John, and take this kind of practical approach that's needed. Uh, you guys are amazing, magnificent, and there's not very many people who I would be comfortable granting the authority of a deity, at least over my health-related matters. But you guys are definitely a very small club that I would give that power to in a heartbeat. <laughs> right. uh, thank you, Dr. Lena Wen, Dr. Avin Gupta, for being with us today, teaching us a lot and uh, making us all way smarter. And it, I think both a, a little more hopeful and also a little bit more aware of like that there's still a lot of hard work and a lot of hard questions ahead as we deal with this thing. This is not, uh, we're not about to around the corner, even though things are definitely getting better. So thank you guys for being here on Hell and High Water. Thank you. Thanks, John. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Vin Gupta and Lena Wen for being with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on the Apple Podcast app or whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 